electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. This is day 94 of the coronavirus crisis. The Dow drops almost 1,000 points as the U.S. marks its 200,000th confirmed case of the deadly illness. It's a new month, it's a new quarter, but it's the same volatile markets. The bottom falls out of the market again. The big market sell-off that we are experiencing at this hour. The Dow tanks almost 1,000 points. This model projects you're going to have a high death rate through July. A new and dire warning from New York Governor Cuomo, as all playgrounds in New York City are closed. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. It is good to have you with us again this evening. We start tonight with our first look at U.S. futures. April coming in, much like March left. At least uh, right now, we are positive, albeit slightly, on the Dow. Dow futures would open higher by 63, but another tough day today on Wall Street as the second quarter gets underway. Follows a sell-off to start the quarter as Wall Street worries about the economic damage from the outbreak. The Dow, S&P 500, NASDAQ all falling more than 4%. The Dow dropping nearly 1,000 points. And all three of the major indices are now at least 25 percent below their all-time highs set back in February. Seems so long ago. The market's trying to guess now how bad the economic impact is going to be. Earlier on CNBC, Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman said the recession is already underway. Having three million unemployment claims uh, spike in a week, you're clearly, you're clearly in a recession. I, you know, whatever the te- technical moment of inflection point, you know, we're, we're going to have a global recession. I've been, I felt this a month ago. And, uh, you know, that, that's clear. The issue is not do we have a recession. It's we are having a recession. The issue is how well do we rebound? Let's answer that question. Jason Trenard is chairman of Strategus Research Partners, joins us this evening. So, Jason, you heard uh, Jim Gorman. How how can we rebound from this? How will it be, do you think? Well, I think, you know, Scott, my own opinion is I, I was I have to say I was somewhat hopeful uh, a few weeks ago. There was a chance we'd have a V bottom uh, by the end of the year. I think it's going to look a little bit more like a U, uh, which means that it, it's it's going to be difficult to get back, particularly with the major driver of our economy, which is uh, consumer spending, it's going to be hard to get back to where we were, even 75, 80% of where we were, I would argue, this, this year. The, the good news, and this is scant, you know, this is scant solace, but one of the questions we're getting a lot, and this is from institutional investors, is, you know, what are the chances of a depression? And I, I feel very strongly that what the government has done so far in terms of monetary, fiscal, regulatory, and even trade, 
uh, is very, very different than what we've seen in, in past depressions. It's been a long time, uh, thank goodness. But uh, the the amount, the magnitude, and the the speed at which we're we're bringing resources to bear suggests that at least we'll, we'll, we should start to bottom this year and get a little bit stronger in 2021. Let's deal with the here and now. Are we going back to the lows? Do you think? Scott, I, I have a feeling we'll revisit them. I, I take no pleasure in saying that, obviously. Um, I, I think that one of the, the, the changes, I, I think there were, there were people like myself who were somewhat more optimistic that perhaps some middle way could be found where, where you didn't necessarily have to have as many, uh, as much of a government, uh, much of an economic shutdown uh, and, and could mitigate the, uh, the virus uh, at the same time. I think I'm hoping that the president's press conference yesterday marked some sort of low from a uh, from a sentiment perspective. Um, but I think people are starting to get their hands around really what a much lower earnings profile for the S&P 500 is. The good news is that I mean, we've done already a lot of damage. We were down about 38, 39 percent from from peak to trough. That's about an average uh, bear market since 1929. Um, so uh, it's not necessary that we have to break through those lows. But I, I do think people are starting to get, uh, myself included, accustomed to the idea that this is going to take longer to get back online than, than we thought. And we're not going to have all the same companies with us sadly, that we had uh, going into this. Jason, we'll leave it there. Appreciate your time tonight. That's Jason Trenard, Strategist Research Chairman tonight. A pair of CEOs testing positive for COVID-19. Glenn Fogles, the head of Booking Holdings, which used to be Priceline, sent an email to employees in a video message sharing that news, said he is feeling fine. Also, Manny Chirico, the CEO of PVH, which owns Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger, confirmed his case to Jim Cramer on Mad Money Tonight. And I was kind of shocked when I found out that I was positive. Um, I'm asymptomatic. My wife, who hasn't been tested, but they said 95% sure, has, also has the virus, uh, is, uh, has some mild symptoms at this point. And my parents, uh, you know, 90 years old, both of them, live with us uh, in a separate apartment, and we've had to isolate from them. I wish the Chiricos well tonight. President Trump and the Coronavirus Task Force addressing the fight against the growing number of cases here in the United States and across the world. We all came to the agreement that we may have cycling with another season. We'll be much better prepared. We likely will have interventions. But the ultimate game changer in this will be a vaccine. Well, look, we have a great oil industry and the oil industry is being ravaged. And as you know, Russia... And I spoke to President Putin. We had a great call. Russia, Saudi Arabia. I spoke with the crown prince. We had a great call. But uh, I think that they will work it out over the next few days. If you ask me, I think it's just it's too simple not to be able to. They both know what they have to do. So I think I have confidence in both that they'll be able to work it out. But it's uh, it has ravaged an industry worldwide. Not here, I mean, worldwide, gasoline's going to be 99 cents a gallon and less. You know that. That's already starting. It's popping up. 99 cents. So that's like giving a massive tax cut to people of our country. When we try and get the airlines going, if, if fuel is costing much less, it helps with getting the airlines, which is always a tough business, always has been a tough business. We've offered assistance. We've offered medical supplies, etc. They have refused that. I, I think if the Iranian regime put more interest in terms of taking care of their people, in, in, in the context of this virus, they would be better served. Instead, 
The Iranian regime continues to want to spread its malign activities throughout the region. They want to continue to send out the Quds Force and others to, uh, to, to cause problems throughout the region. We know that in one way, shape, or form, they're either resourcing, directing, approving, or whatever uh, operations for Shia militia groups in uh, Iraq that are targeting American forces. Former FDA chair and CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb back with us again this evening. Doctor, it's good to see you again. Thanks. Let's deal with the latest news, and that is the latest numbers out of New York tonight. Another 235 deaths in New York City today. That is the largest one-day total. The governor today saying that they are still climbing the mountain in New York State. Right. And they're going to they're going to continue to climb that mountain for uh, another couple of weeks, at least um, the deaths and the hospitalizations are going to lag the new cases. And so even if they peak in terms of their new cases over the next couple of weeks and there were some indications that they may be approaching a peak in the new cases. And so that I'm still hopeful that over the next two weeks to 10 days, we'll start to see them plateau, uh, notwithstanding the governor points and models today that looked less encouraging. But the hospitalizations will continue to climb, and the deaths, unfortunately, are going to continue to climb past the point in which the new cases peak, simply because there's a delay to hospitalization and a delay in the time to death from this virus. Finally today, in the state of Florida, a stay-at-home order across the entire state. We spoke about this last evening. You urged the governor to do just that. Your reaction to the news tonight? Look, it's the right decision, um, and he made it in as timely a fashion as he could relative to yesterday. So he, it goes into effect tomorrow midnight, is my understanding. Um, that state's heavily seeded at this point. Uh, there's probably a lot of virus in that state. You see a doubling every four days in the number of cases. Hospitalizations are starting to climb. That state could be on the cusp of really exploding in terms of the number of cases that they have and the morbidity uh, in that population. And as you know, they have an older population. They have a lot of nursing homes and institutions that are going to be very susceptible um, to spread within those institutions. So they need to be on guard right now and really alert that they're facing potentially a pretty tough situation. It appears as though religious events, though, doctor, will be exempt in the state of Florida, at least as we know it right now. Is that a mistake? Do we need churches and synagogues full of parishioners at this point? Well, look, I hope that um, religious institutions act responsibly. I, I think it was an unfortunate carve-out, um, perhaps made for some political considerations, but I hope that the institutions themselves act more responsibly and don't hold services at this point. And this is a month that we really need to hunker down, um, work together. Uh, it's going to be shared sacrifice. This is going to be a very difficult month for the entire nation. But uh, if you know Florida doesn't act tough, and if local officials don't take responsible action and act strong, they're going to face a difficult situation. That's a state that has a big population, a lot of urban centers. Um, they're coming up against their warming months, and so that should be a backstop, but they can't put all their stock in that. That's not going to be an entire backstop. They need to take tough mitigation steps, and so they may have caught a break in terms of when this started to spread in the state. It's getting very warm there. It's hot in the 80s now. It's getting humid, and that should help be a backstop against spread. But this virus is still going to transfer in warm weather, and they can't count on that entirely. So let me ask you about that. Bill Gates today writing in the Washington Post, quote, shut down anywhere means shut down everywhere. Is he right? Why not just shut the country down for 30 days? And can you do it piecemeal style and be successful? Or is Mr. Gates correct? 
Well, the country is effectively shutting down. I mean, it's hard to, to orchestrate these things federally. The federal government has limited authority in this regard, and it's really left to state and local officials to make these decisions. But it's by and large happening. There's some states that are still lagging, like Alabama. Um, you know, you saw Florida lagging as well, and Texas lagged up until recently. And so that's unfortunate. I think what's going to happen here is that different regions in the country are going to be epidemic at different points in time. And different regions will be recovering at different points in time. And so you might see some reciprocal uh, restrictions on travel. I mean, if Florida ends up being the epicenter of epidemic spread late into the summer when the rest of the country is recovering, other states are going to have to make some tough decisions what they do with travel out of Florida and whether they allow people from Florida to come into their states and potentially put their states at risk simply because Florida officials acted too slow to really get control of the risk down there. So we'll see what happens. I'm hopeful that everyone acted early enough. We saw a lot of officials taking swift action. Hogan in Maryland, uh, Illinois took swift action, uh, Governor Baker in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. So there were governors that really stepped up early-ish and took very swift action. And hopefully that's going to pay dividends in the next couple of weeks as we see the epidemic curves start to hopefully level off in this country in those parts of the, the nation. I want to get to some Twitter questions in a moment. But first, air travel, should it be banned nationwide at this point? Look, this has been a this has been an active debate. I, I would argue against banning air travel within the nation because people need the ability to travel for specific reasons. And if you ban all air travel and you don't allow people to um, travel for important reasons, that really denies uh, folks a form of their liberty. I think effectively we've really cut down on travel so much, so much volume has been taken out of the system that that's probably not a big source of spread right now in terms of the, the, the uh, steps that are being taken. Um, cleaning, deep cleanings on airlines and people having more awareness about um, their own symptomatic conditions and not, not going out if they have signs and symptoms of coronavirus. But banning air travel, I think, could be destabilizing to the country at this point. We wanted to make this interactive if we could. I do have some questions from Twitter that I'd like to read to you from our viewers. Jim Diffley writing to you, what data does Dr. Gottlieb consider most critical to assess our progress? It's a good question. Yeah, I would continue to look at the new cases, the number of new cases on a daily basis and see how that's growing. If you're still seeing the number of new cases uh, doubling every three to four days, that's an indication that we're still on a sl steep um, slope of the curve in terms of the epidemic. When you start to see the doubling time get lengthened, um, what happened in, in South Korea and Singapore and Hong Kong was that they were able to extend the doubling time of the virus to up to 10 days as they approached the end of their epidemics. When you start to see the doubling time stretching out over five days, six days, seven days, that's an indication that we're turning the corner. We've been getting food delivered, uh, obviously, in mass in this country. What precautions should we take on prepared food deliveries, doctor? Well, you know, prepared foods are different than um, packaged foods. I think on packaged foods that you're getting delivered, um, just clean the outside of, um, of bottles, containers, things like that with a Clorox wipe. I think that's a reasonable step to take. Probably overkill, but reasonable. If you have people doing the shopping for you, it's coming off of a shelf where there might be a contaminated surface. Um, with prepared foods, you know, you, you're at more risk because you're dependent upon the person who prepared the food. If it's an item that can be reheated, the risk goes down. Um, but there is some risk there. But look, there's a point at which we can't reduce all the risk and we need to continue to live. And so, you know, we need to be willing to take some reasonable risks to attend to um, daily needs like eating. I'm going to squeeze one more in. Why does a doctor think summer 
and a better toolbox, a word you've often used, will lead to a backstop on the spread. Singapore did everything right and still had to move to broad mitigation efforts in a country where it's 90 degrees and 80 percent humidity. What will be different in the U.S. in two months? Well, that's exactly right. Well, first of all, Singapore had success. And so how much the the climate um, played as a factor into that is unclear. And we're not going to be able to isolate that effect. We know that coronaviruses don't transfer in the summer. Typically, this one will because it's so novel. People are very susceptible to it. But that said, the summer should be a backstop. It should help. I mean, it's not going to stop the spread of this virus, but it should help in part because droplet transmission doesn't happen as efficiently in the summer and in part because people are out more in the summer. So the epidemiology of spread changes when people get out of indoor spaces where you're more likely to spread a virus like this. And so the summer should be helpful in that regard. But the, the questioner is exactly right. This, this virus did continue to spread in Singapore and other warm climates, and that's unusual for coronavirus. As far as the toolbox is concerned, you know, we're a couple of years away from a vaccine. I think to be conservative, we have to figure it's going to be two years to a vaccine. We need to, we need to plan for that. This virus is going to continue to change our lives until we develop a better set of tools to deal with it. And that's going to be a screening system that identifies cases when there's only a dozen cases before they become 100 cases in a city, when you can intervene with what we call case-based interventions to isolate people and, and quarantine people and isolate their sick contacts. Um, but you also need a therapeutic. And I truly think we can have a drug. But we really need to see global regulators step up and act more aggressively to try to bring drugs through development. You don't really get a sense that there's a shared sense of urgency around the world in trying to get a therapeutic here. And I think a therapeutic is eminently achievable if we really set our minds to it. We're seeing a concerted action on the part of industry. Companies are coming together and meeting in a pre-competitive fashion to share data and share resources to try to bring a therapeutic to the market. Policymakers need to meet them, and I think they need to be willing to take risk as well to get things through development more rapidly, given the sense of urgency and the public health need here. Two years, though, for a vaccine is longer than we've been hearing from officials, including from the task force, who continue to maintain maybe a year, year and a half. Well, look, a year and year and a half is the optimistic scenario. I don't think we should plan for the optimistic scenario on a vaccine. This is a vaccine against a virus we've never developed a vaccine against before. We've never had a vaccine to a coronavirus. The platforms that are being used to develop this vaccine themselves are very novel. We've never used these kinds of approaches to developing a vaccine. So this is, you know, stacked risk, if you will. And we're also going to, when we get a vaccine, we're going to be mass inoculating an entire population with the vaccine. And so the need for an assurance of safety is going to be increased in this regard. So I think to budget conservatively, we have to think that we need to get through a couple of years, a couple of cycles of this before we have a vaccine. If we get lucky and we have one sooner, that will be fantastic. But I wouldn't plan for that. I would plan for what the toolbox is going to look like absent a vaccine. And it needs to be robust enough to prevent the recurrence of what we're having right now. Maybe a dose of a reality check this evening for us. Doctor, thank you as always. That's Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA Thanks chair and now a CNBC contributor. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is just getting started. Next tonight, it's become commonly known as the hump, the path and pace to the peak. Coming up, one Wall Street stock charter, now charting the virus, shows us where we stand. And what it's like in parts of the hospital these days, off limits to everyone except doctors and the very, very sick. Before the break, images from around the United States on day 94 of the coronavirus crisis.
Good to have you back with us. The largest ship, there it is, to ever pull into a North American port just arrived in Los Angeles. It's one of three mega ships set to arrive in the next month to clear out empty containers that have created a backlog there. It holds more than 76 million square feet of cargo. Here is where we stand this evening on the virus. Florida and Nevada have now issued statewide stay-at-home orders. According to the TSA, travelers through airport checkpoints dropped to a 10-year low yesterday. The TSA says tonight 146,000 people were screened, compared to 2 million on the same date last year. And the Wimbledon tennis championships have been canceled for this year. Well, while the number of cases rises across the United States, there is data indicating the positive impact of social distancing. For more, let's bring in CNBC's Meg Terrell and RBC biotech analyst Kenneth Mackay for our weekly update. Meg. Scott, thank you so much. And Kenan, thanks for joining us again. It's your third week with us. We've been tracking your modeling, uh, which you normally apply to biotech stocks. Uh, you're applying here to epidemiology and, and the virus. And there's some good news in your report this week, if you can call it that, a silver lining. Tell us what that is. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for, for having me, Meg. Um, so good news is that cases actually are beginning to slow. The exponential growth that we're seeing in the U.S. is beginning to slow here. While the number of new cases on a day-over-day basis is actually at all-time highs, over 20,000 new cases today and yesterday, that's some of the highest that we've ever seen for any country in the world, that's actually slowing as we look at this on an exponential basis. The T-doubling time, something you heard uh, Scott Gottlieb talk about previously, over the last two days is now over five days. The, the uh, five days is sort of when the virus is actually doubling within um, the, the U.S. So that actually is a dramatic slowdown from what we were seeing previously, where it was around 1.7 days uh, around two weeks ago. And do you attribute that to these stay-at-home measures that we've been implementing, all of this social distancing? Is that starting to work and to show up in the numbers? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that's really the only uh, sort of therapeutic effect we've seen anything have on sort of the, the slowing of this virus. Again, all sort of social distancing protocols. We've seen that in China. We've seen that in Italy. It has taken around uh, two weeks in both of those geographies to begin to see that. And I think we're just beginning to see that now in the U.S., you know, as we've all sort of been experiencing, working from home, taking dramatic steps to relax uh, any social interactions. At the same time, you know, you looked at, lit at Italy to sort of construct an equation for when you expected um, case numbers at a point that the U.S. healthcare capacity gets overwhelmed and you start to expect to see mortality rise. Uh, you say now we are at that point, especially in places like New York. Yeah, again, something you heard Scott Gottlieb refer to. Uh, I, I think there are epicenters of sort of the, the worst affected regions in the U.S. New York is one of those epicenters. There, the mortality is much higher than you're seeing across the rest of the country. In New York City, now we're looking at a mortality rate of around 2.6%. Uh, that's more than doubled over the last few days in New York City. The rest of the country is around 1.9%. And again, across the country, mortality beginning to creep up. Previously, it was around 1.2% on a nationwide basis. So I think that is the beginning of an, a rise in mortality as local hospital systems do begin to face capacity constraints. Obviously, dramatic work to improve that capacity in New York City. We are crossing our fingers very much that uh, we, we do begin to see those effects of that increased capacity, either keeping it where it is or even hopefully bringing that mortality rate back down. Right. And of course, all of these numbers are dependent on 
testing. Um, I want to ask you to model backwards a little bit, if I can. Do last night, Dr. Debbie Burks was saying the only way to know if our efforts here in the U.S. started too late is to do um, serology testing, which is to test blood for antibodies to the virus to see if it was actually circulating here undetected in late February and early March. Um, do you expect that when they do that, we're going to see that we missed a lot of disease before we started testing? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely, undoubtedly. I, I think even without serologic testing now, we're probably missing a lot of disease. Uh, for instance, over the last five days, even though we've seen a really dramatic decline in the T-doubling time of this virus here, the slowing in that exponential growth, the testing has actually been flat. So our day-over-day -day cases are going up, but testing has really been flat for the last five days. It's just the higher percentage of patients who are getting tested are positive. So that's a little bit of a concern. But then to your point, modeling backwards, I think what we're going to see is the real uh, sort of population incidence uh, of this virus. And you've heard a lot of patients aren't having symptomology. They're not actually presenting with fever. They're not presenting with cough or very severe fatigue. They don't know that they have the virus. I think we'll also begin to identify those patients and hopefully at some point begin an understanding of whether or not we can achieve something called herd mentality, which again has been talked to on this program. Uh, herd, I'm sorry, herd yeah, immunity. We're all, we're all waiting for that herd immunity. <laughs> well, the herd mentality, hopefully we're all at least uh, agreeing to stay at home for a while. That would help. Ken, and thank you so much for being with us. And Scott, right. sending it back over to you. All right, we appreciate you both. Meg Terrell, Ken and Mackay with us tonight again. Dr. John Coleman is a pulmonary and critical care specialist at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. Now he's working in ICUs that have been converted to treat COVID-19 patients. Doctor, it's good to have you with us this evening. Good evening, Scott. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And I hope you are as well, and that of your colleagues. Can you take us uh, to the front line tonight? Tell us what it's like in your hospital. Sure. So we have um, seen in Illinois and Chicago, we've become an epicenter of coronavirus. And we have, over the last few weeks, seen our numbers grow. And our healthcare system has done an amazing job of kind of having a plan in place of how to strategically plan for these people coming into the ICUs. So we have cohorted all the coronavirus patients into ICUs, and as the numbers increase, we have increasing numbers of ICU beds that we are utilizing. So there's a plan in place for, as the numbers increase, to make sure that we always have the capabilities to care for everybody with coronavirus. Have the situations in other cities, whether it's New York City or elsewhere, helped you in any way to prepare for what you're facing now and what you might face in the days and weeks ahead? Absolutely. I think the experience of New York, as well as what we've seen in Italy, um, has seen that this could this can surge very quickly, very fast. And so you have to have a multi-layer plan to make sure that your health system can sustain this influx of patients that are coming in. And so we have been for weeks now planning PPE, planning ventilators, planning levels of ventilators, planning support staff of how to staff our respiratory therapists, our nurses, our physicians, and how we can pull from everybody in the system to really provide optimal care for people. I wonder if you could share with our viewers what it must feel like for you personally and, and your colleagues to know what's coming and have to simply sit and wait for it and be prepared as best you can. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a great question in the sense that I think as physicians and as healthcare providers across the board, we all take that oath to, to provide for people and when they're sick. And so what is amazing about people in the healthcare system is they stand up when they need to. And so mentally, we're all part of a team. We're all helping each other out. 
we're working together. It's been a great atmosphere in the sense that, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, to limit exposures for people, we're all trying to limit how often people are going into rooms. So, like, a, a nurse typically goes in there and administers meds or titrates drips, and a respiratory therapist typically goes in there and adjusts the ventilators. But now, if I'm going in there, I'll do that stuff so that they can listen. They're you know, exposures to coronavirus. And same thing goes for like, they're going in there and doing ventilators or drip changes as well. So we're all working together to actually give, to make sure that we can sustain this influx that's coming. Appreciate all that you're doing, that of your colleagues as well. And we do wish you well this evening. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. You have a nice night. All right, you do as well. There is more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Straight ahead. Picking entry points in a market that's moving up and down so fast, it's making even veteran investors' heads spin. And wait until you see what Four Seasons is doing with one of its hotels. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. Stocks opening up the month of April on the downside. The Dow plummets. As the bell goes, we are down 4.3% on the S&P 500. All sectors lower. Nearly a 1,000-point loss. I can't blame anyone for selling after that miserable first quarter with very little good news. The CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Brutal quarter it was. Brutal start to the second quarter. Let's see how futures are shaping up this evening, albeit quite early. The Dow would rebound at this moment by more than 100 points. S&P, Nasdaq in the green as well. Stocks falling more than 4% on the first day of this second quarter on concerns over the economic fallout created by the pandemic. All 11 sectors were in the red today. Utilities, real estate, and financials leading the way lower, all off just about 6%. Let's bring in Mark Lashini now. He is chief investment strategist with Jannie Montgomery Scott. Tom Stringfellow is the president and chief investment officer with Frost Investment Advisors. Gentlemen, it's good to have you uh, with us. Tom, I'll turn to you first. What should people do with their money this evening? Well, once they get over the uh, shock of, of, of the uh, downturn today, it was just a, an all-red day looking across the board. You know, I, uh, my comments have, have been you can't panic at this point in time because this entire settling process is, you know, is understanding what's happened in the market. You know, what, where did we get to from just a few weeks ago when the economy was running full steam? Then it came to a complete stop because of the obvious uh, coronavirus issues. Uh, this is not a panic moment because investors have traditionally not fared really well when they've gone through an emotional exercise like selling off. So, Mark, we may not need to panic. Um, I think we can uh, all agree with that advice this evening. But where is the market going from here? Are we on a slow ride back down to the lows, if not lower, as someone like Jeffrey Gundlach has suggested today? Well, Scott, I mean, if we look at history and if, in fact, past is prologue, we could take anecdotes from other events that have occurred where we've had similar waterfall-like declines, leading from peaks to troughs, which put us into bear market territory. We've downed now 34% through last Monday's close, which is fairly typical in the midst of a, a recession. So we've seemingly discounted most of that. But we also know that oftentimes those declines, those precipitous falls, from the peak are often then followed by a ricochet rebound. In fact, what seems almost tailor-made in terms of 17 to 20 percent, obviously it occurred 
uh, concurrent to the end of a quarter. So you had some rebalancing going in, which probably boosted the returns even more than what would otherwise be typical in a kind of a bear market bounce. And often you see a follow-on retest where more often than not, not only is the previous primary low touched, but it sliced through, not necessarily deeply, but enough to suggest that only then we've seen that kind of capitulation low, that panic liquidation, the weaker hands have been shaken out such that a more durable bottom can be formed and therefore lead to more sustainable and healthy advance, leading to perhaps the early innings of a new bull market. It's hard to think about a new bull market at this point, Tom. Do you think we're going to have a V-bottom? I don't think it's going to be a V-bottom. I think there's too much emotion in the sell-off, but I also agree with uh, you know, what I just heard. And, and I look at this, and it's hard not to be emotional in a market that's had such a drawdown over such a short period of time. But this is the point where investors need to look at what they hold. And there's just so many chances to buy into quality that are considerably cheaper than they were a month to two months ago. Gentlemen, it's good to talk to you tonight. I appreciate you both uh, being with me. Mark Lashini, Tom Springfellow for us tonight. Much more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Next tonight, one of New York City's most successful chefs on his path forward. Plus, every 30 minutes, we're bleaching everything down. Making a business virus-free. Also, how a Four Seasons hotel is stepping up to help in the middle of this mess. Before the break, images from around the world on day 94 of the coronavirus crisis. back. I want to tell you about a special program we have coming up tomorrow night. We're going to once again focus on individual business owners. With us, the profits, Marcus Limonis, Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary, and Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg, all here with details on what the companies are doing right now to help small businesses. Tomorrow night, 7 p.m. We can't wait, and we hope you'll be with us. The governor of Florida enacting a statewide stay-at-home order today, as we talked about at the top of our program. But in Clearwater, Florida, Gabriella D'Elia already virus-proofed her family-owned deli. She's with us tonight in her own words. When we first heard about the virus, of course, we were all scared about, number one, getting sick, and number two, how it would affect our small business. But as long as we're able to open and we feel we're doing it in a safe manner, we will continue to stay open. We're limiting our staff so we don't have a lot of people here at one time. We also are supplying hand sanitizer and gloves for people to use as they're walking in our establishment. We're not letting as many people into the store, only five at a time. We're also wiping everything down, bleaching the front door, the handles. We're not even asking our customers to sign their credit card receipts right now because anything we can limit, the better. They're able to call us up, place their full order, pay by credit card, and then call us when they reach the front of the store and we run it out to them. They can pop their trunk open and then so that we don't even have to have any contact. We definitely want to be ahead of what's going on because we see 
what's happened in other countries when they haven't taken it serious enough. Any little thing right now makes a big difference. That was Gabriella D'Elia tonight in her own words. What's it like to go from being named the best new restaurant in the nation to being closed? Lee Hansen is chef and co-owner of Frenchette. It used to be one of the city's toughest tables. He is with us tonight by phone. Lee, it's good to speak with you. I hope you and your family are well. We are, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Hope you guys are well, too. We are. Thank you. Can you please tell me what the last few weeks have been like? Well, you know, like everybody, it's been a tough couple of weeks. We, uh, I guess it was uh, March 15th where we laid off our, our entire staff pretty much. And that was about 100 employees. Um, you know, we got them uh, their PTO, their uh, paid time off as uh, something helped them out as well. And, you know, that's our biggest concern is keeping our employees kind of afloat while this uh, while we wait this out. You know, it's not lost on anybody. April 1st rolls around and it's time to pay rent. How, how did you guys handle that? Were you, were you able to pay it? Have you been able to renegotiate with your, your landlord? We're still talking to our landlord right now. You know, we're also getting in position for these um, SBA seven-day loans that are coming out. And we'll be, um, you know, we're on the line for that starting uh, April 3rd, which is Friday. So um, that will offer some relief. And, you know, some of that can go. What's, what's great about that loan is things like rent and payroll and uh, utilities can be um, forgiven uh, if, those, uh, if, that, if that money goes to those, those you know, sectors. T- take me through that, because it does, as you, as you just said, begin on Friday on a first-come, first-served basis. Um, so you're going to be on the phone, I, I presume. Have you been talking with financial advisors on exactly what you need and how you'll deal with it when you get it, assuming you do, in fact, get a loan? Yes. No, we're, uh, we're positioning ourselves uh, on the phones with, uh, with lenders, uh, accountants, lawyers, just trying to get everything in line, getting our ducks in a row so uh, we don't waste too much time. You know, I envision, I, I look at this uh, uh, April 3rd, I, I picture the, the start of the New York Marathon where you just see thousands of people just, just running to get these, to get these loans. Uh, Two trillion sounds like a lot, and it, it is. But uh, uh, hopefully, it'll uh, hopefully it'll spread around. Okay. Yeah. Are Are you able at this point to think about the road back? What things may look like from your restaurant standpoint, and and really restaurants at large in New York on the other side of this? The president tonight saying, "quote I believe the restaurant business will be bigger and better than ever when we get on the other side of that." Do you believe that? Uh, my heart of hearts, I do. I mean, there's definitely going to be. I mean. The hardest part about this right now is the unknown. There's so much we don't know, and you kind of have to take it month to month. But and there'll be a slow ramp up. Uh, there'll probably be a little bit of um, a push when we can first open. People kind of, you know, running out and trying to uh, reconnect with people and have not cook their own dinner for once. And uh, but you know, there's going to be some hesitation with some people, and there's going to be some, you know, maybe there won't be so much as. Uh, cash flow for for people to spend on going out to dinner. Tourism, that's another big. A big issue, which will probably be slow to return. So I kind of see it as a slow ramp up, and um, you know, and who knows? Maybe they enact some kind of like, oh, when we first open, maybe there'll be fifty percent uh, of capacity you'll be allowed to do. Who knows what they'll what they'll do until they uh, figure it all out? But yeah, I think it's going to be a slow road, but it will come back. It will come back for sure. I, I, I was front businesses, you know, as of many small businesses, an important fabric to our to the economy and to the community and everything. For, for sure. And I was going to ask you about that, whether you envision a, a restaurant looking differently uh, on the other side of this than it does today. 
with, with fewer tables and just a different experience and environment that you're going to now have to, uh, to work in? You know, it depends on how this plays out. If the, if a vaccine, which would be a game changer, comes through, I think we can almost probably go back to normal. Uh, there, there definitely might be some spacing issues. You know, we're looking at, uh, uh, building another restaurant and a few weeks ago we're looking at, uh, uh, like a communal sink. Like that's gone, right? The communal sink in the, in the bathroom is probably like something you won't see too much anymore, but you know, there could be things like that. Hand sanitizer stations, who knows? Yeah, it, it may look different, but, uh, we, we hope you'll be back the same as you were. Lee, we wish you well. You and, uh, you and your partner and uh, co-chef, co-owner Riyadh as well. Uh, we wish you well. Thanks so much, Scott. Nice talking to you. All right. That's Lee Hansen tonight. Again, the chef and co-owner of Frenchette in Manhattan. Coming up, how the Four Seasons is stepping up to give exhausted health care workers a good night's rest. Good to have you back with us. Tomorrow, New York's Four Seasons Hotel starts hosting the city's medical professionals. That's right. The idea is to give them a safe, clean space to go after a long day in the hospital. It also allows them to keep their families isolated from the virus. In fact, if they catch it. Rudy Tauscher is the general manager of the hotel. Dr. Robert Quigley of International SOS was brought in to help consult on that. Both are live with us tonight. Mr. Tauscher, I begin with you. Um, it's a brilliant idea. <laughs> that uh, we read about that you're doing. When did you decide to do this and why? Thank you for having us. Uh, last week, uh, we got a call from our owner, uh, Ty Warner, and uh, he has been asking uh, to follow the call of uh, Governor Cuomo's call to action. And since then, our entire team has been working and preparing the hotel. Uh, we have implemented enhanced protocols and procedures under the guidance of Dr. Quigley, who is also with me. And uh, I'd like to uh, thank you for the extraordinary collaboration that we had between government and private sector. It was extraordinary of everybody who came uh, to help and uh, finding our way in this uncharted territory. So we are proud of all our teams uh, here in the hotel, uh, to our offices in Toronto Four Seasons and to uh, Mr. Warner himself. Uh, we, we, we are working very much under... Uh, the health and safety protocols of, uh, that our guests and employees uh, are as safe as possible. It's our uh, top priority, but it's also time uh, for us, we thought, uh, to, to help those you know, who have been uh, traveling to the city, uh, which were humbled uh, by the selflessness and the bravery and generosity. And mm -hmm. together uh, with everybody, we'll get through that. Dr. Quigley, can you give me an idea of what your consultation entailed to, to make sure the hotel was in the right shape to, to welcome in healthcare workers? Uh, certainly, but first I wanna say how much of an absolute privilege it has been for me to participate in this process. The cooperation and the collaboration with the Four Seasons staff was, was truly unbelievable. And for me, it was not only an adventure, but, but it was quite enjoyable because we were working so well together. Basically, we came into a bricks and mortar and we decided we have two populations we have to take care of. First and foremost, it's the employees of the hotel that will be there during the visiting of the healthcare professionals, and then of course the healthcare professionals. And so we assembled a crisis management team, for lack of a better word, with senior management and my team, and we literally did walkthroughs over and over again, thinking of all the possible permutations and combinations that could result in exposure 
uh, in particular to the staff, Four Seasons staff. And so rather than uh, covering up, we stripped down. So we removed a lot of the uh, displays, a lot of the furniture. We made the pathways very simple throughout the hotel. We limited the section of the hotel where the healthcare providers would uh, would be uh, uh, would be present. We have a single point of entry uh, on uh, 58th Street. Uh, that entry is where people get screened, both staff and the visitors alike. The staff then are diverted to a segregated part of the hotel where they do their work, and then the visitors will come in if they pass the screening. We have zones within the infrastructure, red zones, orange zones, and green zones, and they speak for themselves. Uh, if somebody does not pass the screening process, which is temperature and uh, questions, they are relegated uh, to the red zone and they are managed uh, accordingly. Uh, the nurses that we have working around the clock mm -hmm. at entry point are uh, doing an extraordinarily good job and we've done drills all day today. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate all that both of you are doing. We'll talk to you again soon. Go to CNBC.com all evening long for up-to-the-minute information on the markets. And join us tomorrow night for our special show. Kevin O'Leary, Marcus Limonis, Sheryl Sandberg. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Shark Tank is next. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.